Good morning. Um, okay, so I just want to let you know the section we're getting into of the book of John, we're getting into some pretty Eastery stuff here, and I'm not, I'm not talking like bunnies and stuff. Um, this, is, this is the section of John that's pretty dark, and it gets dark, and it's going to stay dark for a couple of chapters as we dive into the last hours of Jesus's life on earth. Um, and so one of the things I want you to know is, is that it's, it's important to recognize you cannot, I cannot do justice to what Jesus experienced um, during these next couple of chapters. I can't do justice to that in a sermon, well, for certainly not in just 35, 40 minutes, but in a room with mixed gender, mixed ages, we got little kids, and we got all kinds of different backgrounds and situations like that. This is very different from sitting down with a group of students or, or middle schooler or high schooler or whatever, college students or just a bunch of guys. Like, um, so I'll do my best with this, but here's, here's what makes that really okay. Um, uh, is that church isn't intended to be the apex of your spiritual life anyway. Um, the church, church experience on Sunday morning is not, to meant, not meant to be the spiritual high point of your week. Um, that's, that's, I, would, I would pray that would be the case. Francis Chan talks about in one of his articles um, and sermons the fact that, that we often in the church, especially, and this is his criticisms of church staff and church leadership, is that we think we're creating the, the high point in people's spiritual life. We build everything to this moment on Sunday morning that's meant to be the key moment, and that's a mistake, and I totally agree with him. What, what we've created here is a wave pool. Um, this isn't the ocean. This is a wave pool. And so any excitement you're feeling, it's, it's protected. It's, it's not legitimately any risk here, right? I mean, I mean, there may be opportunities to minister and all that, and we want that done here on Sunday morning, and if you're working with the little kids, you might disagree with me on some of what I'm saying here, but, but really, we intentionally do that. Like it's, it's, and that's not wrong. That's a big part of what Sunday is. Sunday is meant to be preparing us for what God may require of us or life may throw at us or whatever those spiritual moments are going to be that we need to be prepared to engage with. Church is meant to prepare us for those moments. It isn't meant to be that moment. There may come times when, when you know, maybe that plays out, and I'm not downplaying the significance. I'm just letting you know, like, the hope is that you will go out and live a Christian life in such a way. If, I'm just, if, if this is the high point of your week as a Christian, then you're probably doing it wrong. You're, you're probably living a relatively boring Christian life, a relatively safe Christian life. Um, and so I, I really would love to encourage you you come here on Sunday morning and you go, ooh, with the waves. I mean, that's, that's great, but it's not the, it's not the ocean. Um, it's, not, it's not the real picture. It's um, Danny Luffelholtz, a good friend of mine who's the pastor over at Grace UB. Um, they, he, Danny, Danny went to his um, honeymoon and, and in Hawaii, and they went to this hotel that was 100 feet from the ocean, and he tells this great story about coming down from his honeymoon, you know, with his, with his brand new bride, and they're going to go out and play in the ocean, and they come down the stairs, and they come outside, and there's a swimming pool there, and it's full of people, and he said all he could think was like, I mean, the ocean's right over there. It's just right there. You didn't have a pool where you come from? You came to Hawaii to go to the pool? Like, this is, but this, this is the Christian life for so many of us is that this is, this is the high point of our Christian life, but this is the swimming pool. We, we're, 
pretty controlled here. We've got, uh, you know, the climate is controlled and it's pretty chlorinated and it's, it's relatively safe. And I mean, like, this, this is great, but that's what this is intended to be, is prepared to, to get you ready for the game. This isn't the game. This is the halftime talk or the huddle or whatever. So I just want you to have that in mind. Please have your spiritual moment this week, your, the apex of your spiritual moment this week, while alone with God or in community with your friends or praying with your spouse or on a date with them or in bed with them, praying with your kids, reading a book, taking a walk, sharing the love of Jesus with a stranger or praying for a waiter or a waitress or confessing sin or restoring fellowship, or dealing with the pain that you carry with you all the time, or immersing yourself in grief, or accepting a phone call at 3 a.m., or going on mission, or writing a check, or getting a gift, or ministering to somebody, these would all be totally appropriate, acceptable high points of your spiritual life this week. So let's let Sunday morning being our spiritual high point be the rarity, be the exception, not the rule of our Christian lives. If you want to learn about crucifixion, if you want to learn about scourging, there are ways to do that outside of here that you could learn about that. There's medical reports on it that are horrific to read. You can go back and watch The Passion of the Christ, which, as I said in the first service, the reason The Passion of the Christ is rated R is because it was greatly toned down for public audiences. I'm not sure you could legally create, even in today's technological world, what the situation really have been like. Here in John, it's going to be dark. It's kind of like it was with Judges. Some of you may remember back when we studied through the book of Judges, and I would get up Sunday after Sunday and, and just get up and say, I'm so sorry that we are talking about this this morning. Like, this is just depressing and awful. I can't believe I planned to teach through Judges. That was such a mistake. Um, it's, it's, it can be even a little demotivating. Secondary trauma is a real thing, and you may experience this over the next few weeks. My reminder to you is that at no point is this experience, is Jesus going to be a helpless victim? At no point is anyone pulling, thing, pulling anything over on him. No one's tricking him into anything. No one's forcing anything on him. No one's demanding anything of him but himself. No one. It's, it's wild to me to look back and realize how that was taught to me through song or through movies or through whatever, this impression of Jesus as this helpless victim in the crucifixion, when the truth is he is the conductor and he is orchestrating every single piece of this to his own horrific experience because that was what was required. He's gotten everyone to this point and he's going to keep going. So in verse 38, Pilate has just said to him, what is truth? which was my trigger phrase for last week. After he had said this, he went back to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. So Pilate comes out to the crowds now. The crowds have begun to gather. This has become interesting, and crowds have begun to gather here by the Antonia Fortress probably. And he comes out here, and he comes to the crowds of people, and he says, I find nothing wrong with this Jesus character. You have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Probably Pilate, this, apparently it seems clear in John, Pilate does not want to crucify Jesus. He doesn't want to. He doesn't want Jesus killed. He tries to do an end around here on the priests. He comes out not back to the priests, not back to the religious leaders. He comes to the crowds now and says, hey, you know what? I have this guy whoever, who's been arrested and turned over to me, but, but you guys have a thing where you ask me for a prisoner at Passover. Apparently in the past, maybe Pilate's even given this to them, which is wild because he hated them. 
um, and was a brutal person with them most of the time, but maybe just to keep people happy, he did this. And he says, so, so who should I release? Maybe I could just give you back the king of the Jews. Now, I love that in John, it's made clear that Pilate isn't who mentioned Barabbas first. It was the crowds. Pilate would not have, this, this turns out to be a mistake on Pilate's part. Pilate would not have wanted to release a man like Barabbas. We'll talk about him in a second. But, but he says, do you want me to release the king of the Jews? What he didn't know was the priests had foreseen this. They had known that something like this might happen apparently. And they'd already gone into the crowds and they had planted seeds with the crowds to demand Barabbas if Pilate gives them a chance to give back a prisoner. Verse 40. We know that from, from the other Gospels. Verse 40. They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Just so you know in the Greek, the word there, they cried out, means howled like a pack of wild animals. They had already been, they had already been driven into a frenzy. In fact, you notice it says they cried out, Again, John is letting us know he's shorthanding all this. He's summarizing this. Go read Mark and Matthew and Luke if you want the details. John is saying this is the last time they call. They've been doing this, so they call again. They call for it. They're, they're crying out. It's getting more and more crazy. They're calling out for him. Now Barabbas, John says, was a robber. The word here, bandit, pirate, highwayman. Um, Mark tells us that he was an insurrectionist and a murderer, um, probably what this means is that he was a, he was a rebel against Rome who, who was a bandit along the roads somewhere in Israel who waylaid travelers, including Roman groups and that kind of stuff. And so he was a notable prisoner, Mark tells us. Everyone knew he had been thrown into prison. This was a big name. This was a, a public terrorist, and he had finally been caught and been thrown in prison. Pilate says, do you want me to release this guy, the king of the Jews? And they're like, no, we want Barabbas. Now, this is a wild situation. Some New Testament scholars think that we should not treat Barabbas as, as an historical figure. The lesson of Barabbas is so pointed, it is so on the nose, it preaches so well that it makes you dubious. Let me show you. Bar means what? Son of. Abba means father. Barabbas is the son of the father. In later manuscripts, his name is, is said to be Jesus Barabbas. Jesus, the son of the father. So in other words, what's happening is the people of Israel have Jesus, the son of the father, or Jesus, the son of the father, to choose from. One represents the divine prophetic Messiah, the Son of God, the Son of Man, God's plan. The other represents a defiant, lawless, insurrectionist, murderer, man's plan. And the people of Israel here are given a choice by Pontius Pilate to choose one. It's so on the nose, it's so obvious and so in your face that people begin to doubt his historical, whether he was a historical figure or whether the gospel writers are teaching us something through this character. Now, I will tell you, my go-to in situations like that is to say both. I see no reason not to think of Barabbas as a historical character, no good reason, and that God was hardwiring a story that we needed to hear into this account.
See, I don't take God out of this narrative. I don't take God out of the narrative that, that God was going to create this moment when we could look back and realize there's a decision to be made God's way or my way. And it's time for us to realize in that moment, remember how we talked about we always want to identify with the good guys, but there's moments when there's insights from us identifying with the bad guys. We need to recognize that in our world, probably we would have been part of the crowd calling for my way. So it's, it's, it's such a great moment, it's hard to miss there as it's kind of thrown in our face. Which Jesus do they want to follow? And clearly, Jesus, repre- Jesus Christ represented no threat to the Romans, but he represented a massive threat to the power of the Jewish leadership. Whereas Barabbas, the criminal, represents no threat to the Jewish leadership, and he's only a threat to the Romans, so the Jews, the Jewish leadership says, he doesn't threaten our power, we want him released. Now, by the way, according to tradition, Barabbas gets out, gets released, goes on into a tirade almost immediately, and within 24 to 48 hours is dead at the hands of the Romans in the midst of another insurrection he's trying to uprise, to raise up. So he wasn't too bright. Doesn't learn. He did not learn well from his situation. So we know that's what's going on here. The, the Passover, this is Jewish, this is, this is Jerusalem during the Passover, tens of thousands at least of Jews here. It has this probably boiling cauldron feel to it. I've, I've never been to Israel, to Jerusalem during Passover, and specifically because I was told, don't ever go to Jerusalem during Passover. Um, so I'm, I'm not planning on doing that at any point. I've been warned against it. I have been there, there during Ramadan. Um, and let me just tell you, it, even just Ramadan, these, these high religious days for, for the Muslims or the Jews or even the Christians in this city, it, it still to this day creates this sense of, of like tension and anxiety and, and nerves. And you don't want to be caught, for example, carrying a pocket knife through Jerusalem during Ramadan. I'm just... Just saying. Um, so that's a, uh, been there, done that. The, um, uh, this, the cre- so you can imagine at this time, they are, there's a rising up. There's, there's an insurrection just waiting. I mean, one wrong move and the city burns. One wrong move and blood is spilled. That's what Pontius Pilate is facing in this situation. So it tells us that Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. This is apparently, this seems to be Pilate trying to put a spoon in the bubbling cauldron. Maybe he can take some of the heat away from this. So he has Jesus flogged. Now this, John's account of this and the other gospels is really interesting. Has created the supposition that there may have even been two beatings that Jesus went through. A flogging and a scourging. We know there's at least one, so I'm just going to stick there, and we're just going to lock in there. But you may, if you do further research, you may discover that there's some thought that he may have been flogged, which would have been a beating you're expected to survive, and then scourged, which is a beating that you're not supposed to survive. You're going to die from it either immediately or soon thereafter. Um, At least he faced a scourging. We know that for sure. There's two different Greek words used in John that may indicate it was done twice. Regardless, we know he was scourged in addition to this whatever flogging is. The Roman scourging is such an awful, shameful, debasing, 
punishment that typically Roman citizens, even ones convicted of a serious crime, were protected from it. So if you were a Roman citizen, you couldn't be scourged even if you were being executed. It was that awful an experience. Eusebius, who was a, a church historian in the 200s AD, so just a couple hundred years after this, um, describes a scourging, and I'm not going to read all of it. I'm just going to read a little section of it. He says, For they say the, ba- the bystanders were struck with amazement when they saw them lacerated with the scourges, even to the innermost veins and arteries, so that the hidden inward parts of the body, their bowels and members, were exposed to view. It essentially is a non-systematic skinning of a person. So I think we have a picture of the idea of the Roman scourge is that they would take something like this. And remember the idea of 40, 39 lashes? So 39 lashes was the Jewish law. And no bearing on the Romans at all. So the Roman scourge, they would take something like this with cords. And then they would typically, they would dip it in wax or honey or something sticky like that or glue. And then they would take it and they would dip it down into a bucket of glass, metal shavings, bone, shells, that kind of stuff. And then as it would harden onto the ropes, as these sharp-edged pieces would harden onto the ropes, that's what they would then beat the person with. Um, it, was, it was meant to essentially remove the skin and top layers of flesh. Um, Certainly, all the ribs and spine and hip bones and all that would be exposed at the end of a scourging. Um, So you're you're talking about an awful, unbelievable um, experience that the Romans would put on somebody. Again, I feel like it's it's necessary at this point to kind of remind us of something. This is kind of like in, you know, Princess Bride. It's like the princess does not die at this time. Like it's, it's okay. You look worried. So let me clarify something for you. Matthew 20, 17 to 19, Jesus said, And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside on the way and said to them, See, we're going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes. They will condemn him to death. And they will deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And he'll be raised on the third day. Again, let's take a moment and be reminded that Jesus knew this was going to happen. And also be kept, be kept in mind, keep in your mind, Jesus had seen this done. Jesus had seen people scourged. If you lived in that time in Jerusalem, in, the, in Israel, you had seen people scourged. So it's, it's stunning to me and so impressive to me when, you ask, when I ask myself the question, what motivates somebody to knowingly put themselves in that experience? To go into that knowing I've seen this done. I've seen a person turned into something less than human at the end of a Roman scourge. And I'm going to go do that. I'm going to go experience that. Remember how we said as we went through the end of the book of John, we were going to constantly come back to this question. Who is this guy? Well, who does this? What kind of God is this? This is one of those moments when you realize that Jesus, having seen this done is now putting himself in a situation not to risk experiencing it, but to guarantee it. He knows that's where he's going. This is the cup, part of the cup, a sip of the cup that we were meant to drink, and he's taking it. 
knowingly. This was a plan before the creation of the world. This, is, this was part of the process that was going to happen. Now, Jesus had also seen crucifixion. We'll talk about that more. But when Jesus was about 10 years old, there was some ser- a series of uprisings around Israel when Herod died. And so Jesus, as a young man, would have seen this uprising put down, especially around Galilee. And the historical account is that probably, Herod, that probably the Romans had thousands, thousands crucified along the roads of Galilee, where many of us have been. Crucified along those roads, and Jesus as a boy, six, seven, eight, nine years old, would have seen thousands, maybe, of people crucified along the roads of Galilee. So again, he knows exactly what he's walking into. In this day and age, when you say a phrase like, take up your cross, there's nothing metaphorical or cute about that. That would be horrific. That would be totally socially inappropriate. The idea of us wearing crosses around our necks, man, that's insane. What if everyone wore a little image of a guy jumping out of a World Trade Center building? Like that, that would be the equivalent. It would be that offensive to say something like, you know what, when you take up your cross, you know what, when you're, what you've got to do for me is you've got to look out that window and jump out of that burning World Trade Center building before it collapses and follow me. We'd be like, wow, you don't say that. You don't talk like that. But that's what Jesus, when he talked this way, that's what he was referencing. This was very real to them. There's reason to believe that thousands were crucified. Jesus would have been there. It tells us in verse 2, Then the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him with a purple robe. And they came up to him and said, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Now remember, again, Jesus had declared this stuff long before. When, in John chapter 1, so we did communion this morning. Uh, we, we, we experienced the Lord's Supper this morning at 840. I, I highly recommend, again, it's a great way to prepare for, for community and worship together. At 840, we do that. And I, I'd love to encourage you, especially if you're a leader or a teacher, there's just nothing center that centers our soul and our body and our mind together like communion, at least not for me. We read this passage. This was from today's readings. Nathaniel said, Rabbi, you're the son of God, the king of Israel. You have Nathaniel declaring what Pontius Pilate was going to do. Jesus answered, you believe that because I saw you under the fig tree? You'll see greater things than that. Very truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. The Son of Man. The very term Jesus is going to use now 20 chapters-ish later to describe himself. Now, I also want to tell you this. This blew me away. This is, this is one of those moments in Israel that, that really got me um, the first time I experienced this. So there's different, there's different theories, different ways this is taught. But the first time it was taught to me this way, I want to explain it to you. So you have to go down 30 or 40 feet in Jerusalem to get to first century Israel, typically. It's all buried, city on top of city on top of city on top of city. And so there's a place where you go into the old Antonia Fortress. They've discovered where the Antonia Fortress was. I think we have a picture of the Antonia Fortress. And, and this huge, massive fortress that would have overseen Jerusalem. And they have, have that. And they even have part of one of the towers sticking up out of the ground in one place. And you can go in and go down 30, 40 feet, down sets of stairs and winding down through. It's really wild. It kind of, kind of Indiana Jones. And you come into this room, and in this room, low-ceilinged room with little pillars of, of dirt sticking in there, and, and at one end of the room is the Roman road that ran outside of the Antonia Fortress. Like it's, it's that road. The first century road is there. And this, would, this was one of the most likely places where Jesus would have been tried and even faced 
the trial and the beating and all that stuff. This would probably have been where the Jewish people gathered. That's the temple ground touching one edge of it. And so you can imagine this would have been a common gathering place for the Jews and Romans to run into each other. So you can imagine them standing outside calling for his crucifixion. Jesus is taken back inside. He is flogged. At the end of his flogging, you get this weird little account of the Roman soldiers doing what they did. Well, down right next to that road, right next to the first century Roman road, a game is carved into a stone, a game that the, that the Romans like to play. I kid you not, it is called the Game of Kings. And this was the, this was the Pokemon of the day or the, or the whatever, the little card game, the dice game that the Roman soldiers, who had all been teenagers, were playing. And so they have this, they have this car, they just carved it, they chiseled it. That is first century chiseled into the stone right by the Antonia Fortress. It's called the Game of Kings. Here's how it was taught to me the first time. Is that they would roll these dice and you gain points and it was a win-loss, odds-evens type of game, they think. And, and what happened is as you were winning, if you got a certain points ahead, you began to become the king. And so at some point, you're the king, so you get, you get a scepter, and a little bit long, a little later in, you get, you, get, you get a robe. And at some point, you be, you're crowned king. If you get high enough in, you're crowned king. But then one of the weird things they think is that when you win this game, when you finally won this game, you lost because then you, you're out of the game. When you won, you were assassinated as king. You were killed as the king. And so you, would get, you were then out of the game. This was a game that we know was being played by Roman soldiers at this time. It seems absolutely clear to me that the Roman soldiers, as they're standing there bored, are forcing Jesus to play this game with them. And that's how it was taught to me the first time, is that they're either rolling the dice for Jesus, or maybe they're making him roll the dice. But whatever it is, at some point they go, oh, hey, lucky king of the Jews. How else would Roman soldiers spend their time with someone called the king of the Jews? They have a game called the game of kings that they start playing with him and Oh, look, you, hey, lucky you, you get the scepter. And then they hit him with the scepter. Hey, lucky you, you just got ahead, you get the robe. And so they take a piece of purple cloth and wrap it around his just torn to shreds body, which later is going to be torn back off of him, that robe. Oh, look, look, Jesus, you managed to get to the top of the heap. You get a crown. Oh, we don't have a crown. Where would we find a crown? Let's find some thorns, weave them together, and hammer them down onto your head. There you go, now you're king. Oh, Jesus finally wins the game. This is, this is clearly, in my mind, what is happening here. This is as, as strong a defense of the gospel accounts as anything, anywhere. It's just shocking to me that this was discovered and that it wasn't made the, the main news of the year when it was uncovered and discovered and, and taught, figured out. This is what was going on with Jesus as these Roman guards are playing this game of kings with him. So Pilate goes back out while the Roman soldiers are playing this game. Pilate goes back out and says, see, I'm bringing him out to you that you may know I find no guilt in him. So Jesus comes out. Pilate may not have known he was going to come out looking like this. So Jesus is brought out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pontius Pilate says, behold the man. Again, Jesus is, Pontius Pilate is probably once again trying to set Jesus free here. Can't you see that he's no threat? Can't you see that there's nothing, this guy has no, poses no danger to you people? This is no king. Look at him with a crown of thorns and a 
fake purple robe. This is no threat to you. Let him go. There's nothing wrong with him. I find him innocent. I find no guilt in him. Now, Pilate comes across as, as less hateable in John than general, which is wild um, because he was well hated by the Jews at this time for sure, and John would have known that. Um, I think there have been times when people have criticized John as though John was too pro-Roman and anti-Jew, but there's really no reason to, to assign that to John. John's just describing what happened. There's no reason for John to be pro-Roman. Remember, they're going to try to execute, the Romans are going to try to execute John a couple of times, and eventually um, they're going to exile him to an island for a decent percentage of his life. It's not like he's some big friend of the Romans. Um, here in this situation, this was just what was going on. Yes, later Christianity in the 300s became pro-Roman and anti-Semitic, which was an error, but, you know, welcome to humans. But this is long before that. John wrote this while he was alive. What strikes me most powerfully about this statement, Pilate says to him, behold the man, is the theological significance of what Pilate is saying, and he has no idea. He doesn't know he's quoting in advance a part of what Paul, the apostle, is going to write about this man to say this is a man who came Though God, he came to live as a man, and not just man, but a servant, not just servant, but a servant to death, and not just death, but death of a cross. That's, this is a man, Jesus Christ, who came to experience life as a man. He's our representative. He's the second Adam. This is the representative of man, the one who's drinking the cup meant for you. That's what's going on here as he stands here as half a man, broken and bloody, maybe with internal organs exposed as he's standing there. This man, this is the man, behold. Maybe he's even stunned. He's going, look at him, he's standing here. He should be dead. And he's, yet he's still standing and he's standing at peace. This is not just a man, this is a real man. This is a man to be admired, not feared and hated. You should be, you should be respecting this guy. Pilate has, seems to have come to kind of admire Jesus here. The chief priests and the officers saw him and cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate says to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him. I find no guilt in him. I think Pilate's so angry right here. Oh, you're happy for me to crucify an innocent man, but you don't want to pay the price of doing it. You don't want to do it. You take him out and crucify him. They would say, but, Yeah, but you might execute us if we crucify him. Well, if you were serious about this, you'd be willing to pay that price. You're willing for him to die, but you're not willing to face that? They're cowards, and he's disgusted by their cowardice, and I think disgusted by the cowardice in himself. This is, this is a passionate moment. You crucify him. I find no guilt in him. And the Jews answered, we have a law. And according to that law, he ought to die because he's made himself the son of God. Look at the next phrase. When Pilate heard that statement... He was even more afraid. Of the Jews? Maybe. But the response we get implies something else. People are, pieces are starting to come together for him. Remember, you know, from the other Gospels, his wife had told him to stay out of this. That's a great reminder for all husbands, by the way. Pilate was warned by his wife, don't have anything to do with this guy. Here we are 2,000 years later trying to find anything sympathetic about Pilate because he didn't listen to his wife. Amen. I should get a lot more of those, you'd think. Okay, so his wife told him to stay out of this. His own religion believed that gods came to earth as men to test people all the time, and he believed in sons of God, Hercules and Perseus and whoever else. Right? These, are the, these are the sons of God. He probably knew about the Messianic prophecies. He hated and feared the Jews, but he knew what they believed. And all of a sudden, he's now impressed by this man. 
He's come out and declared him as a man, but now who does he apparently claim to be? The Son of God? I think Pilate is terrified that he has just had the Son of God beaten. Because he runs back inside. Remember, he talked about a kingdom. Where are you? Oh, you are a king. Remember that whole conversation last week? Oh, you're a king. A king of what? A king, the king of truth. I came in this world for this. Okay, the king of truth. Whatever. What is truth? You're a king. At the end of this conversation, he, take, he drags Jesus back inside. And the question he asked is, where are you from? What is your kingdom? I never got the clear answer on that. Is your kingdom heaven? Like, are you... Is what you've claimed to be true? I think Pilate is terrified that he may have just angered the gods. He may have just really stepped in it. And he's really afraid of this. So now we've got a problem because, see, I think Pontius Pilate is starting to waver. He may not want to crucify Jesus. He's scared for his own soul. He's scared for his own integrity. He's scared of the Jewish crowds. Yeah, and he's now stuck between a rock and a hard place. Is it, me? Is it Jesus or is it me? Do I get, a, do I get a, a giant riot during Passover or do I execute, have executed this one man? How does he make this decision? Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. Pilate said, you won't speak to me? Do you know that I have the authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? You imagine Pilate going like, it's like you want to have me kill you. Why aren't you doing anything to save yourself? Throw me a bone. I would love to save you here. Give me anything to use to save you. I'm the one who has the power to do so. And Jesus says, no, you don't. This is mind-boggling. Jesus, Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Pilate, you're just a pawn in this, brother. This is so far above your pay scale. You, you don't have any idea what's going on here. If you had any sense of what was going on here, you'd be more scared than you know how to be. Like, it's, this is beyond you. You have no power here. None. Zero. You're not taking my life. It's, it's so cool that he puts this together. Now, listen to this phrase. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. Did Jesus Christ just comfort Pontius Pilate? Did he just go like, listen, I know this is hard for you. I know sending me as a, to crucifying me as an innocent man, I know it's going to keep you up at nights. Sorry about that. You're caught up in a big thing here. But just so you'll know, the Jews who turned me over to you, they're guilty of a bigger sin than you. Will you pay? Be comforted by this. They'll pay more. He is comforting Pontius Pilate. Who is this guy? Who, who, who does this? And I do think there's an important lesson here. Is it wrong to condemn an innocent man? Of course it is. Is it a big deal? Of course it is. But Jesus is referencing one of God's clear standards of justice. To whom much is given, much is required. Caiaphas knows better. Caiaphas knew better than any of this. Annas knows better. They know the teachings. They know the, they know the law. They know how this is supposed to work. They are the high priests. They know better, and they're doing this. Judas traveled with Jesus for three years. He knows better, and yet he turns him over. Of course, their consequences of their sin is greater. Of course, it's a bigger sin. They know better. Pilate, he's just a Roman stooge. He's caught up in something that's above his head. Is it wrong what he's doing? Of course it is. 
But Jesus, so Jesus isn't going to comfort him with a lie. He's not going to say, like, eh, it's no big deal, Pilate, you're okay. Call him Ponty or something. You know, Ponty, you're all right. I, I, the truth is, so Pilate, verse 12, from then on Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you're not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. This is just straight blackmail. The Jewish leadership is saying, we're going to rise up under the heading of defending the honor of Caesar. I mean, what rank hypocrisy. I just hate these guys. I don't know about you. I just, they make me sick. That was, that was we're going we're gonna, to, this is what we're going to do. It's, it's, you're a no friend of Caesar's. Verse 13, so when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus back out, sat down in the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement or an Aramaic Gabbatha. This is the seat of judgment. It was the day of preparation for the Sabbath, for the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. Everybody had things to do. He said to the Jews, behold your king. Pilate sits on the seat of judgment as a Roman governor and declares Jesus the king of the Jews under Roman law right here. Behold your king. And they cry out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, you want your king crucified? And the chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. Wow. Again, the level of hypocrisy in this statement is outrageous much less their defiance of Almighty God as their king. We serve no one but Caesar. We have no sovereign but Caesar. They're telling the truth. But it's still hypocritical. Well, this is their promise. This is their blackmail promise. You know what? We promise to keep things quiet during Passover if you'll give us Jesus. If you'll crucify Jesus, we won't throw a huge riot. Historians, secular historians, when they engage at this moment, say, this doesn't make any sense. Why would the Romans respond this way? I just think that's wild. I mean, if, apparently you've never been in Jerusalem at a time like this, much less what it would have been like then. The level of violence bubbling under the surface would have been unreal. Caiaphas said, what Caiaphas said was practically true, and Pontius Pilate knew it. Better that one innocent man die than the whole region erupt in violence and cost the lives of tens of thousands, because that's the other option. And in the end, through the leadership of Jesus Christ, dragging everyone here. They're going to crucify him. What a joke. So, verse 16, he delivered him over to them to be crucified. We'll pick up there next week, but I want to remind you once more by reading, this was a plan. None of this caught Jesus by surprise. This was all being conducted by him. He was leading everybody through it. This was not even a new plan. Listen to what Isaiah had said many years before. Isaiah 53, 5, he was pierced for our transgressions, bruised, for our, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. By his wounds, we are made whole. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that had before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. This was told in truth of the experience of the day and in prophecy about the coming Messiah many years later. None of this was a surprise. 
What's a surprise is that God cares about you and me and all of the other people that he saved enough to put himself through this with 100% awareness of what he was experiencing. And this is just the stuff on the surface. We'll talk more about this as we build into the next week or two. Um, so feel free to be reading ahead. But my, my prayer is that we would experience the power of what Jesus has done and that he knew what he was doing. And he's dragging everybody there out of obedience to his Father and out of love for us to face this. What could he possibly call us to that we would deny him? Let me pray. Father, I pray that you would help us to be so inspired by the sacrifice of your son. I cannot fathom what it's like to know that you're going into a situation to be scourged. What's it like to knowingly and intentionally put yourself there? Lord, that you loved us enough to create a plan that you, the triune God, before the creation of time, before you created anything at all new, that given the option, we would fall and then be powerless to save ourselves. So you created a plan. You laid it out. You pulled it off for the opportunity to drink the cup of wrath yourself, the one that we should have been drinking, the wounds that we should have been given, the blood that we should have spilled, the torture that we should have faced instead, you took it on yourself and were tormented and killed for our sake. You took our, all of our iniquities and our tendencies to fall astray and you put them on yourself. And for that, we thank you humbly and graciously and ask that you would call us to live out a life that would exemplify that, that would give us the opportunity to live out a life that would do a little bit of justice to you choosing us the way you did. Thank you, Father. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.